Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Abby, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. Can you just introduce yourself and let people know how you first got introduced to the IFB movement? Of course. So I was introduced in the IFB movement when I was sent to a boarding school called Marvelous Grace Girls Academy. It is located in Pace, Florida at the old New Beginnings property. So New Beginnings was there and then I guess they closed and moved to Missouri. Yeah, I was excited when you messaged because I was telling you before we start recording, um, when we, I've had a couple of people on from New Beginnings and everyone I've talked to has been like, I don't know, like some have driven up and seen the property and it still looks the same, but you know, the website really doesn't give a lot of information about who's running it now. Um, yeah. And it, I've just been, it's been kind of a mystery as far as like what's going on there. Um, and so when you reached out and said, you know, you said, oh, I'm from, I'm from the Marvelous Grace Girls Academy. I said, you know. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. And then you said, oh, it's in Pace, Florida. I was like, oh, Marvelous Grace Girls Academy. Okay, so as far as all of my listeners know, like New Beginnings Girls Academy was a horrible experience and it shut down, moved out. And we were all hoping that maybe Marvelous Grace Girls Academy was like a better version of that. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. So can you tell me about your first experience there? Was it positive initially? Was it negative right off the bat? Like what was your introduction to that world. Okay. I will start off by saying, I don't know a whole lot about new beginnings. Girls Academy, So I don't know. I can't say if it's better or worse, but my first experience with uh, marvelous grace was my father told me that I was going to go live in Florida by myself. And I had just turned 13 wow. a couple days before I was sent to the home. Um, so I was still pretty young and the thought of living in Florida by myself really freaked me out because he's, you know, I was like, you're just gonna drop me off in Florida. Right. And he's like, no, you're going to go to a boarding school. And I was, 
kind of excited because I had only heard of boarding schools from like TV shows and they were all great. So I was kind of excited, but nervous at the same time when he told me it was a Christian boarding school. And the way he worded it was, you're going to go to this boarding school. They're going to get you the help you need. um, And you're going to have 19 sisters. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't want to be a nun. Right. (laughs) He's like, no, it's not Catholic. He's like, I'm not sure uh, like what denomination they're affiliated with. And was um, and I'm t- I take it from that I'm taking that your family wasn't religious at that we, point. So there's like a whole backstory with that one. Um, I, we were religious when I was younger, but it was not IFB. Okay, more it like more, e- evangelical. Like we go for like Christmas, Easter, like kind of yeah, typical. And, uh, like I'm an American Christian kind of vibe. Yeah, pretty okay. much. In, in a non-denominational church where there was like speaking in tongues and Got it. so okay. that's what I grew up in. So I was thinking he's sending me to a Catholic boarding school. Right. And nuns were like my biggest fear when I was little. So I was okay. like freaking out. I was like, I don't want to be a nun. I don't want to go live in a, in a boarding school with nuns. He's like, no, it's not Catholic, but they're going to give you the help you need. And I was like, do I need help? Like, why don't, I didn't know there was something wrong with me because my mom passed away when I was 10 and I had some behavioral problems just because I was, I didn't know how to process her passing. Right. And nobody was there to teach me how to grieve. Okay. So I was kind of left to myself. Um, I remember my dad sitting me and my brother down when we were younger and he was like, I can't take care of you guys with it just being me. He's like, I can't be your mom and dad. And he essentially told us to just do whatever we wanted. So as an 11 year old, and I think my brother was like 14, um, we kind of took it and ran as like, Hey, this is freedom. Like we're not going to get in trouble if we, you know, go be the reckless children on the, in the neighborhood. So I was labeled the wild child at an early age. And then when I was, I think I was like 11 and a half, my dad got remarried and that was a surprise to everybody in the family. Because he kind of eloped to Florida and came back married. And no family was at the wedding or anything. And I was like, oh, so this woman that I've never met is supposed to be my new mother. So I was bitter at him because I thought he was trying to replace my mom. Um, So there was just a lot of pent up anger and unhappiness and sadness that I didn't know how to process. I was going to say, when you say, you know, because what I'm finding with all of these homes is the range of what, you know when someone's a wild child or rebellious, like that's a very broad term that gets applied to gang member to, you know, so, right. so I'm assuming that you were not a gang member at no. 11 years old. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you say that, was it just like, you were just hanging out with friends? Like, were you doing anything that you feel would even merit like that label? No, or, okay. I was just a very high energy kid Okay, who was used to just, you know, going to school and coming home and running down to my friend's house. Right. For until the sun went down and coming home and, you know, just kind of so doing my get, own. You're not getting in fights. You're not no. in a party. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Right. Cause I'm like, so someone listening is going to be, you know, Oh, see, look, <laughs> she was, you know, a certain way or she acted this way, but that's right. where I'm, I'm finding more and more. It seems to be a lot of kids who either had some kind of trauma that happened that they couldn't process. And so the parents right. just, ship them off or it's a case where you know 
or it's the other extreme where it's like, oh, it was a, there was nothing else we could do, you know, in right. both cases, I don't recommend these schools, but you know, I'm always curious what that range is. And I haven't had anybody yet where I'm like, oh, it makes sense. That was the reaction was <laughs> right. to send you off. Which is why I was confused because I mean, I was never punished for two and a half years after my mom passed away until my dad brought this new woman in. Um, and she tried to set like this whole, like she made, she made me sign a contract and everything. Like these are the chores you do. If you don't do them, these are your punishments. I had a jar where my allowance went in if I had bad behavior. And we ended up finding years down the road that she was not mentally stable because we went through this whole thing before I was sent to the boarding school where I would do stuff like be late for the bus to get to school and she'd have to drop me off. And when I'd get home from work or get home from school, sorry, um, she would have called my dad and told him who knows what. So my dad talks to me on the phone, literally screaming at me, telling me that if I don't get, you know, my shit together, then he's going to put me up for adoption because he's sick of, you know, he's sick of me. And I could never figure out, like, I don't know what I did that right. was so wrong. Right. Um, so you're essentially going, minding your own business, doing your day. And then rumors basically are getting spread about you yeah. directly to your dad. And then you come home to, oh, I'm in a mess to a now. punishment, right. you know, I'm getting spankings and I'm getting put in my room for the rest of the night, you know. So that went on for a couple months up until the point that it was not safe for me to be in my own home because my stepmom had this, I don't know what mentally was going on in her head, um, but she said that she blacked out and that she doesn't remember doing any of this, but she, I came home from school one day and I went to go change out of my school uniform and I had picked out my favorite tank top and she had written on it in Sharpie, you suck, you need Jesus. And this really long handwritten letter from her saying that she doesn't love me and she never loved my dad. And like, she's just married him for money and that she felt sorry for him and all kinds of stuff. And she pulled me aside before he got home and was like, if you ever, ever tell your dad anything that, you know, happens, you're going to be in serious trouble. And she'd shred the letters and I'm sorry, this is hard to talk about. She would shred the letters and tell my dad something completely different so that when he got home, once again, I was in trouble. Right. And as an 11-year-old who lost her mother figure and this new woman is supposed to be, you know, my new mother figure, it was hard because once again, I just, I didn't know what was happening. I was like, is this everybody's family norm? Because everybody at school seems so much happier and like they can't wait to go home to their parents or their moms go out and do stuff. But I didn't have that. So I, I was angry and I lashed out a lot, but there was a lot coming at me at the same time. Yeah. So after my stepmom ended up in the hospital because she tried to commit suicide and blamed it on me, she told my dad that she didn't want me in the house anymore. And at that point, I was about to turn 13, and she had talked to somebody, she won't tell me who, and they told her about Marvelous Grace. And she looked it up and told my dad that either he was going to send me there or she was going to divorce him. So to save, and my dad didn't really, you know, believe in divorce. So he sent me to the boarding school. And was your, was your mom or your stepmom, was she in the IFB world or was she just kind of the same, just religious, but not 
Right. She was not no. IFB. She, she just knew just, someone that knew of the school. Right. Okay. Um, um, so which what, is wild. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a, that's a random... It's weird because growing up in the IFB, no one would have ever sent me to another denomination. So, like, I'm always interested right. when someone, like, but I just grew up in that world. So, like, no one would have ever sent me to a Catholic or a, you know, Presbyterian or any other denomination other than IFB. So, it's interesting right. when I see people who just see IFB as another Christian group and then send someone. That's, like, just yeah. so different than it's I'm always like there's got to be some connection because that's a that's a really random place to go but um so what was the you know I've heard stories of people getting you know some of these schools but like what was your process of getting to the school like what was the kind of transition process for you so I at the point that my mom was or my stepmom was put in the hospital I was currently living with my aunt about 48 minutes away from my stepmom and dad And my dad had kind of stopped talking to me because at that point he was just done and he didn't know what to do. So he called my aunt and told her like, Hey, we're sending her to this boarding school. We don't really know much about it, but he seems like a really good guy because apparently he had been talking to brother Blankenship for years before he even sent me in. Really? Okay. And my aunt had tried to talk him out of it Hmm. because she just didn't, she didn't know anything. My aunt is not IFB either. Um, but she's, she said that she kept getting like weird vibes when she would get on the website and she's like, I don't know. I don't know if I like this. Cause you have to sign over custody. Right. And she's like, I don't, I don't like the thought of that. And so my aunt pretty much got in a custody battle with my dad and my dad was like, no, we're just going to send her because she needs help. So my aunt, since she wasn't my legal guardian, couldn't decide for me. So she told me one day, your dad is coming in a few hours, I already packed your bags and you're going to Florida. And I remember texting one of my friends and I was like, it's happening. I'm being sent away and I don't know where I'm going. I don't know when I'm coming back. And I'm terrified. I'm not going with anybody that I know. And I don't know what's going to happen. So they told me, they were like, we need to, you know, you need to try to fight tooth and nail to stay there. And I was like, I am 12 years old. (laughs) You know, I can't do anything to change anything. So later that day, my dad came and got me. We boarded an airplane. We flew to Florida and they picked us up from the airport. So because I was not IFB, when we were going to Florida, I was in a tank top and shorts and flip-flops. So as soon as he saw me and my dad, there was immediately like a look of disgust and disappointment on Brother Blankenship's face. And I could, I didn't like him. I didn't like the way he carried himself. I did not like the way he looked at me and my dad. So he loaded us up in his 15 passenger van with gigantic purple letters, Marvelous Grace Girls Academy, changing the girl, changing the world one family at a time was their saying and logo at the time. So we got in and um, he was just making conversation with my dad and I was just staring out the window because I just couldn't process that this was actually happening to me. And that my dad was leaving me in a few hours in Florida with these people that I don't know. So we got on the property and I was immediately ushered upstairs into the office where I was told to change into this skirt that was down to my ankles and this red polo button up thing. (laughs) Um, And they took all my stuff away. So they took my suitcase and my pillows and they said, well, we have to go through all your stuff. And I was, I remember saying, okay, well, there's not anything bad in there because I wasn't a bad kid. 
I didn't no. do drugs. I didn't run away. You know, I wasn't gang affiliated. <laughs> and my dad was like, it's okay. You know, it's just part of the process. I was like, okay. Um, so they take my stuff back and then I was told to change. So I changed my clothes in their bathroom and came out. And I remember thinking like, why do I have to wear this dress? Why, why weren't my clothes fine? What's wrong with them? You know, like there wasn't any symbols or anything on them. And I was like, it can't be offensive. I don't understand. Right. And then brother Blankenship came out and said, we're going to take you for a walk around the property just so you can know what building is what. And then he, he said that I was going to have a buddy. So they had the buddy system, which I was pretty much attached to this girl that had been there for years and she was there to teach me the rules, like what to do and what not to do. So this girl came in and, you know, she had her hair back in a ponytail and she was wearing the same outfit as me. She came in smiling real big and she's like, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so really happy that you're here. We've all been praying for you. And I was like, how have you been praying for me? You don't even know who I am, you know? So I was kind of freaked out. I was like, (laughs) you know, like, what do you know about me or what, what do they tell you about me? So anyway, so then we walked around the property and we came back into the office and my suitcase was sitting there and my pillow was sitting there. Um, and my suitcase was empty because it only had like pants and shorts in it. So they had taken away all my clothes and sent them home with my dad. And then I was told to go sit in the dormitory and wait. So I was followed my buddy all the way to the dorm. I was assigned a bunk and I sat there for like 45 minutes getting stared at by all the other girls that were there. And that's when I started to cry because I had felt abandoned. I had, I felt like my family was done with me and this was it. This was my new forever. And after about 25 or 30 minutes, there was a knock on the door and brother Blankenship had asked me for, to come out to say goodbye to my father. So I remember walking down the sidewalk to the office bawling and my dad was bawling and he gave me a hug and he's like it's every everything's gonna be okay they're gonna help you and I'll talk to you soon and I said okay you know this is what you want to do then you know it's already happening so he he left and then I was ushered back to the dorm where I just I lost it because I felt abandoned and alone I didn't know what was happening still I didn't know where I was or what this place even was And I wasn't allowed to talk. I was on mandatory silence for the first month and a half that I was there. I could not talk to a single person because I was new. Right. Which I'm assuming for your personality being kind of, you know, extroverted. And it sounds like, you know, more that probably wasn't healthy and probably wasn't, you know, like if someone told me I couldn't do that for a month and a half, it would be really, really difficult with my personality. So. Yeah. So the reason they didn't let me talk was because I was new and I didn't know the rules. Um, and they did not want me talking about worldly things. So to avoid that sinful talk, I was told just to be silent which terrified me because I was like, I'm not allowed to talk. Right. And I wasn't allowed to ask questions. I wasn't allowed to do anything. Anything I did had to be told to my buddy and my buddy would deem it if it was necessary or right or wrong. When I was like, why does this person get to decide if I get to talk or not? So that was my first introduction into IFB and it was terrifying. Right. (laughs) So 
I mean, obviously you're there, you know, the introduction first month and a half, you're just kind of there, but what was it, what was the day in the life of, you know, the school? I mean, what was, what was the, you know, your kind of daily routine being there? Okay. So daily routines, the routine was nice having something to constantly do. The things that we did were not so much enjoyable. Okay. So we would have to wake up, um, six 30 sharp every morning. And if you were not out of bed after one minute, after the alarms went off, you got demerits. And if you continued to stay in bed, they would tip your mattress and you would fall onto the floor essentially where they would pick you up and put you on your feet, you know, and tell you to go get ready. You had 30 minutes to get ready to get dressed. Um, and there was mandatory silence in the dorm at all times. So anytime you were in the dorm, there was no talking. So you get up, you put on that day's uniform, whatever color it was, whatever color shirt and skirt um, was for that day. And then as soon as you were ready and you had your Bible for morning Bible reading, you were to stand in line. And if you were late in line to leave when the clock hit seven o'clock, you got demerits. And at this time when I, so I was in this boarding school for five and a half years. Wow. So at the time, the beginning, when I was there, you were allowed to get 10 demerits before you were on discipline and 10 demerits added up very quick because of the things that you would get demerits for. So anyway, so if you weren't in line, you got a demerit. And then if you stepped out of line in any sort of way or made eye contact or even looked like you were trying to communicate with someone demerits. So we would walk to the cafeteria where we had 30 minutes of mandatory scheduled Bible reading where they gave you this piece of paper that had, we were required to read the Bible through in a year, every year that we were there. So every morning we had a passage of scripture that we had to read and a passage of scripture we had to memorize. So you would have 30 minutes to read and memorize. And then it was breakfast time. So then we would sing our scripture song and wait to be told we could go get in line for food all while we're still on silence. There's no talking. And if you weren't on discipline, you got to sit with your team, which is like a group of five or six girls that you are grouped with that you do your chores and stuff with and any sort of activity, anything you do it with those five or six girls. Um, And if you were on discipline, you were put at a table facing the wall and they also had different uniforms and stuff, but we can always go into that later if we need to. (laughs) So then we'd eat breakfast. We'd have 30 minutes to eat breakfast and then we'd have 30 minutes to do our chores. And if you didn't eat all your food, you got, you either could, it depended on what staff was on duty. You could either save your food and eat it for lunch and not get the lunch food and just eat your leftovers, or you could just not eat it and take the demerits. Okay. So after breakfast, we do our chores and they essentially graded our chores to scan to see who would get demerits. So if your chore was not done perfectly, there were demerits. Right. So, you know, some girls had to go do the laundry. Some girls had to, uh, clean the dormitory. Some girl had to clean the kitchen. Some people had to do the dishes. You know, there were just different right. stations that we were at. So after that was done, then we would all sit down for morning devotions, which is where Brother Blankenship would come in and preach at us. And usually the message was directed to a certain someone that had gotten in trouble right. before. But us girls didn't know that. We just thought, Oh, this is, you know, the topic for the day, except for that one girl. And when you finally had done something wrong and he made a message, you know, 
pretty much calling you out saying you're a sinner. You need to repent. You're not saved because you did this. You're not saved because you have this many demerits and you're on discipline. Right. Um, you need to get right with God and stuff. So that was our morning devotions. And then we'd go to school and we use the ACE program. Okay. So we sat in little cubicles and all this time we're still on silence. So there's no communication. Right. So we go into the school and sit in our little cubicles in silence and we start our schoolwork. They would give us a certain number of pages we had to finish that for that day. So you do a school until lunchtime and then you go eat lunch for 30 minutes. You do your chores. Then you go back to school and we would do school for a couple more hours until it was time for nighttime devotions, which was pretty much the same as daytime devotions. It's another servant by Brother Blankenship for whatever the Lord had put on his mind. Sometimes, sometimes we would go to a church that was having a revival, um, a neighboring church. Um, or if it was a Tuesday, we would, uh, some of the girls would get to go to the nursing home to sing for the older people. And then brother Blankenship would preach a message and then we would sing a few more songs and then we'd go home. Okay. So that was pretty much every day for five and a half years. Well, so I'm curious, uh, one, do you know, it's like if there was like a special revival service or something, do you remember any of the speakers or anything that were connected or any of the churches that you went to or? Okay. So there, I'm just so always curious our, what the connections are. And yeah, uh, I don't remember a lot of specific names just because I've been out for a couple of years now and I've right. really distanced myself from that right. world. <laughs> and you, and you weren't in it before, so you wouldn't be familiar that's what I was curious, yeah. But our church was, like our home church was, where we went on Sundays and Wednesday nights, was Charity Baptist Church. Okay. And the pastor was, I'm going to butcher his name because I just, I can't remember. It's Jim McGehee, I want to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was our pastor. Okay. And then there were other churches like West Coast Baptist Church that we would sometimes go to, but we weren't. Okay too affiliated with them and right. we weren't too affiliated with them because they would use screens okay instead of looking out of a hymn book and they thought that was too worldly right so got it they wouldn't go there yeah too much. <laughs> uh, okay so you mentioned you know the demerits and things like that so what so you mentioned like 10 demerits was when you get discipline so what did discipline look like at marvelous grace was it was it like physical labor was it you know more silence like what what did that usually look like so in the five and a half years that i was there i can specifically remember them changing their discipline routine at least three or four times really okay um so when i first got there discipline was you had to wear your hair straight back in a ponytail, kind of like how I am now. You were given a big red baggy polo so that you could stand out. And people would ask, well, why is she wearing a different shirt? And Brother Blankenship would say, she's in trouble. Right. We, if you were on discipline at that time, you were not allowed to talk. You sat by yourself facing the wall. You were given different food. So if the girls got, like shepherd's pie or something the girls on discipline were given a pile of tuna a piece of bread a piece of lettuce and a cup of water and that was your meal 
Um, and you didn't get any extras. You didn't get salt and pepper. You didn't get any toppings. You didn't, you didn't get anything extra. So your meal was like the bare minimum. So then a little bit later on, they changed it from 10 demerits to three demerits because you don't, they, they said that when you mess up, you're not given three more tries before you're punished in real life. Right. Which I mean, makes sense, but like, so, and then the punishments for discipline were still the same. And then they changed their whole level system Okay. where we had level A, B, C, and then discipline. So A, B, C, and D. Level A was the highest and you got your privileges. You could talk during lunchtime. You could participate in Friday fun night. Little things that when you're in a system like that are just like mind blowing. Like you're like, I have to do this, you know? Right. And then discipline, you were given a red shirt. You weren't given different food and you had to sit with the staff members facing away from all the other girls looking face to face at the staff members. Right. And then you were given sentences to write depending on what you did. So if somebody was rude to one of the staff members, you were given like 5,000 sentences with a scripture verse and then like a, I will not disrespect so-and-so by doing such and such ever again kind of thing. And then they changed it again to where you only got three demerits. And that was towards the end of my stay where you get one, two, and then the third year on discipline. Got it. And that was the physical labor to work off your demerits. And I remember one specific time I had like 300 something demerits (laughs) and I, I can specifically remember it was because one of the staff members would tell me to do something and I would just kind of like look at her like, okay, you know, which was deemed extremely disrespectful. So I would get three demerits for disrespect and two for something else. So I had 300 and something demerits. And the only way to get those off were to work your demerits off. And two ways that I, that are like etched, etched into my brain that I remember doing to work off my demerits was our school building was like an old trailer that was like redone on the inside. Um, but the outside was kind of moldy. And if you power washed it, you could definitely tell like there's some mold on the outside of this building, you know? So I was told that I could scrub the walls of the school on the outside with bleach to work off some demerits. And I remember being outside for so long that the bleach had eaten holes in my skin on my hands. And I was not allowed to stop scrubbing until one of the staff members thought, you know, I had learned my lesson and they would take off five demerits for a whole day of scrubbing. So that was one pretty (laughs) far-fetched punishment. Other girls were, you know, you might have to rake the four acre property. Right. Or the other really bad one when I had so many demerits was they told me they would, Brother Blankenship specifically told me that if I had raked everything out of the chicken coop barefoot and leveled the ground and put new hay and food in and like took out all the chicken eggs and stuff barefoot within a certain time frame, he would take away all my demerits and I would be put back on level. So, of course, I'm like, well, of course I'll do that. (laughs) 
So I'm, you know, out in the rain, barefoot, scrubbing chicken poop off the floor, of, you know, the ground. And I did it and I got all my demerits taken off. But like the physical labor and being by yourself and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm being punished for making eye contact with another girl that one of the staff members deemed communication. Like, this is wild. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah. <laughs> was there ever any, outside of the labor, was there any kind of physical like spankings or paddlings or anything like that at the school? Or was that not something that was done there? There were no spankings or anything. But when we would go into the dormitories at night, they would essentially bolt the door shut. Okay. Anytime that door closed, it was bolted shut and a staff member had to put in a code for the door to open. So I felt like a prisoner. <laughs> but there was one night where this one girl was having a panic attack and she was essentially f- freaking out and she threw something at the wall and one of the staff members that was in the room that night had radioed in to Brother Blankenship saying that she needed backup because she was not safe and this girl was going to harm her. So, like, we're all sleeping when this happens. And Brother Blankenship comes storming in at, like, 10 o'clock at night. And he grabs this girl and puts her in a chokehold, essentially, and pins her down on the ground with her face in the concrete. and. Um, there was like three other staff members on each limb holding her down to the point that she was screaming because she was in pain. She, she wasn't going to hurt anybody, but she was deemed unsafe. So brother Blankenship was holding her down and she was crying and trying to get out of it because she was in pain and they would not let her go until she would go limp from the pain. Then they would carry her out and we wouldn't see her until sometime the next day. And the girl, and that didn't happen to that one girl. That happened to a couple girls. And where did they and go they were, during the night? Did they just? I'm not sure. I still don't know. I don't know if they just went into like the, the Blankenship home or the right. office. Because that never happened to me because I was terrified. Yeah. But they would always come back in the next day with like this face of no emotion but they would be crying and they would be silent and they would obviously be on discipline. Um, it was just a look of pure hopelessness. Right. And I never really asked anybody, you know, what happened because it seems so traumatic that I was like, I do not ever want to do that. <laughs> okay. Were there ever any um, undertones? And the only reason I ask is because I know that there were, you know, undertones of like the prior home and like from a lot of the stories, but was there any like undertone of like any kind of sexual abuse or anything or was that because I, I know sometimes there's you know that's something that happens at places like this where there's not a lot of accountability so but you know again too some people have had experiences where they haven't gotten any sense of that so I'm curious right. what yours um, was there were rumors so after being there for four three or four years like four four and a half five years we learned to communicate without communicating. Um, there was like an undertone of stuff that like the girls would talk about that the staff would have no idea. And once again, it wasn't bad. It was like so-and-so got a demerit for this from such and such staff. We just need to be careful, you know? So there were a couple of like 
rumors going around that girls would go in that were having a, you know, a rebellious streak. They're fighting the system. They don't want to conform to, you know, religion being shoved down their throat because it freaks them out, you know? So they were fighting against it. So they were taken out and had to talk to brother Blankenship himself in his office. And there were rumors going around saying that, you know, he would touch their leg or like rub their shoulders. Once again, this never personally happened to me. Yeah. The only physical contact that I ever received from anybody there was a a side hug from anybody. So other girls were saying that, yes, it's happened. It happened to me. So I was in no way going to say, well, you're lying. He wouldn't do that. Like he's a man of God. You know, I was like, okay, well, if it's happening, then we need to be careful. Right. We need to watch out for ourselves. So I don't know if there was, if they were just angry or yeah, if it was actually happening. So, right. Um, you just raised an interesting question too, but it doesn't sound like it, but was there ever a point, you know, you're sitting under the preaching there, you're, you're sitting under, you know, being told that you are a certain way that, you know, you should feel this way, but like, was there ever a point you started buying into what they were doing and started saying like, you know, Hey, this, maybe they are right. Like maybe I am a, you know, troublemaker. Maybe I am needing help. Maybe we all are, you know. Definitely. I mean, so going in at age 13, I was very, I want to say gullible, but not like more impression, like impressionable, maybe. Like I was easy to mold. Like you could tell me that blue cheese came from the moon and keep telling me that day after day. And I would eventually believe you. Right. (laughs) So, well, that's um, the time of your life where you are the most moldable is your, when you're 13, you know, 12, 13, 14, like you're learning life (laughs) so people can tell you anything, you know? Yeah. So going in that young, um, and developing a sense of right and wrong, they definitely took advantage of it. I was told that anybody who wears pants that is a female is going to hell. Or if you watched any sort of TV you were letting the devil into your home. If you talked about worldly things or things that weren't scripture related or church sermon related, those were words that you were going to have to give account for when you got to the throne of God, you know, when you died. So at first I was like, that can't be right. That seems so far-fetched. It seems so far-fetched, but after being, you know, told repeatedly, like, you can't do this, you can't look at boys, you can't look at girls, dating is sinful, sex is only for when you're married, if you watch TV, if you listen to this kind of music, you know, if you do anything out of line at all, you're not going to heaven. So, for the first, I want to say, year I was there, I definitely fought the system, I was like, I'm going to reach my year mark and I'm going to get to go home because that was the The contract. Right. Yeah. And I had seen other girls come in for a year and get to go home. Not a lot, but a few. So I was thinking, that's awesome. When I, you know, hit my year mark, I'm going to get to go home. Oh, side note. I did not talk to my dad for the first eight months that I was there. Hmm. I had no communication with anybody from my family. Was that part of the requirement of the... It was, was not part of the requirement. The requirement was you couldn't talk to us for like the first, I think, six weeks we were there just so right. we could get settled. 
And then parents could call for five minutes every other week and they could send in any amount of letters. My dad never called. My dad never wrote letters. Every once in a while, if you were really good, you got a visit, a short, like two, three day visit. And if you were really, really good, you got to go home for a week right. and come back. I never got any of that because Brother Blankenship was constantly down my dad's throat saying, I was not getting any help. I had not changed. If anything, I was worse. Saying I was not ready to go home. If he takes me home, I'm going to turn out worse than I was when I came in. Mm. Um, and I didn't know any of that until I had you know, gotten out when I turned 18. <laughs> but yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah. So essentially he wanted to keep you in because it's a paying student. So got to keep, yeah. keep, keep him well, in. But And the thing that got me was my dad was telling me that it was 800. When I had started talking to him, he told me that it was like $800 a month mm-hmm. for me to be there. Wow. But when I would talk to brother Blankenship, because towards the end of my stay, my dad was going through a divorce. So he lost his house and all his furniture and stuff. So he was living in an apartment on an air mattress Wow. And I was worried for him because I couldn't do anything to help him. Um, and Brother Blankenship's like, no, your dad's fine. You know, he's not paying anything. And after I had gotten out, my dad had used all the money that I got from Social Security because of my mom's death. All of that money had been put into that boarding school. So I no wow. longer had a college fund or a car fund or wow. anything, which was really disappointing. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's why, so that's a weird thing that's happened with everyone I've talked to almost, I think every single person I've talked to, maybe one person has not said this, but everyone I th- I can think of has said that, you know, their parents were paying, um, their parents were stretching everything to pay, but on the side of the student, the staff would say, usually in a negative way, like, your parents aren't paying the bills. Your parents aren't paying for you to be here. And in your case, it seems like it was more of a, we're trying to help your dad out. Like, don't worry. We're, t-, you know, yeah. that's a very specific, considering that I've talked with people from like, I think four different homes now with four different leaders. And that's a very specific thread that I'm seeing over and over again. That's a very manipulative tactic. That- very. And I don't know what they did. With that money that they were receiving from the parents, because when we would go up, when we would travel um, to different churches around the United States to sing and show off the home and pretty much promote Marvelous Grace Girls Academy and other churches, he would get up in the pulpit and specifically say, this is a nonprofit organization. We don't get money from the state. The parents you know, they love their kids. This is not an adoption facility. These parents or these kids have loving homes that they needed help, you know, so they came to get help and their parents are not required to pay anything for them to be here. Mm -hmm. And every time he would say that, I I would think like my dad has told me that he's paying $800 a month and it's hard if he doesn't have to be paying $800 a month. Why is he like, why is he still doing it? And where is that money going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I so, doubt, I mean, it doesn't sound like you felt like it was reflected in the food or the clothes or the oh, facilities. Not yeah. Not at all. They would shop at Goodwill and get the cheapest clothes they could find, hmm. which I mean, I shop at Goodwill now, but how many, how many students were there? 
when I first was enrolled, the maximum number of girls they had reached was 19, was the most that they ever had in the home at one time. After I had been there for five years, the most we had was like 48. And that was like maximum occupancy. (laughs) It was very crowded when we had like 48 people there. And and the the ages would range from four years old to 17. That's crazy too. Was, yeah. So, I mean, so at 800 bucks a month, that's 460,000 a year. It's almost half a million dollars a year plus love offerings plus I'm sure the home church supported. So that does raise a lot of questions of where is that money distributed? Because it's not, you know, yeah, that's, that's (laughs) but, um, so yeah, the, so the, the breakdown of students again, sounds very similar. So you have kids as young as you said four. Yes. Okay. And do they share the same dorm as like 17 year old kids or how did that work? So at the beginning, younger girls and the older girls have always had separate dormitories. Okay. So if you were 12 and under, you were in lower dorm, which was just a room, a bedroom in the cafeteria. So basically like prepubescent versus. Okay. Yeah. And then the older girls stayed in the dormitory that was connected to the Blankenship's house. Okay. So. That's still a huge, <laughs> that's still a huge gap of like just a four. Cause like I have a two and a half year old and like, that's a huge gap from a 12 year old to a yeah. four and a half year um, old. There's this one specific four year old that her story, I just can't figure out why she was sent there. Well, her you, mother, what her could mother it be? adopted her when she was two. Wow. And then sent her into the boarding school when she was four. And I remember thinking like, what could a four-year-old do? Right. Like from other girls' testimonies that were there, like some other girls that were there were like, you know, into drugs and ran the streets and right. would run away. And we're, what, I'm like, we're what even if you, doing? right. Where <laughs> even if you disagree with the school, you'd say, well, at least I kind of like disagree with the method, but okay. It makes sense. Maybe they are a trouble, like a truly troubled teen versus, you know, like, like I just <laughs> talked to someone from a school where it's like, you know, there were people there that were gang members and then there were people there who had just rebelled against their parents. And it's like, right. that's a huge difference. And, and even, it's even then, that it's, there was a mix of those people in there right, because right. when we, when we were introduced as new students, it was, this is your fresh start. This is your second chance at life. These girls don't know anything about you. They don't know what you did. They don't know who you are. So, I mean, essentially you're sleeping in a room with yeah, your lights out with someone who you don't know people. who they are. Right. right. You're like, did they steal a box of crayons or did they stab somebody? You know, that's right. a that's a broad range of And emotions. we were never allowed to talk about anything in our What past. you had done. What, anything that had happened right. before boarding school, you would get in so much trouble if you talked about it. So you you went in at 13. You said you stayed for five and a half years. So you left after 18, right? I would say. Essentially, 18, yes. 18 and a half, maybe. Pretty much. So what was it that kept you there? Was it just no really option? Um, was it? or I never had the option to go home. Brother Blankenship was very much involved in our parents' life and our stay there. So my dad and Brother Blankenship had constant communication of she's not ready. You cannot take her home. She's going to be worse than when she came in. Every year that I was there, it was the same. 
the she's same exact message. Yeah. She needs another year. She's still on discipline or like some wild stuff. Like I remember one time my aunt that lived in Tennessee came down to see me because she had found out where I was. So my dad was told by brother Blankenship not to tell anybody where I had been sent to. Hmm. So nobody in my family, other than my what, dad and my aunt. And what was the reasoning was. for that? Did he give a reason for that? Nope. Just don't nope, do it. Not at all. <laughs> so like my sister that lives in California had to go through therapy because she thought I killed myself Really? because she didn't know where I was and nobody would tell her where I had went. Right. I mean, year after year, I was told you're not ready. Your parents don't want you. You should stay and be a staff member. Right. And I was thinking, I, I need to get out of here. <laughs> like I had reached a point where like I went, I fought the system. And then there was a period where, okay, they're probably right. So I went with the system and I was doing really well. And then it hit me like the people in the church that we go to don't even live like this. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't do these same rules. They don't, they're not this strict. They can wear pants. They watch TV. They listen to different music. I'm like, what is going on? So at some point between my fourth and fifth year there, something clicked. It was like, you just need to do what you're told so you can get out. Right. So I started really going through the rules and like being, trying to be perfect. And I had gained a whole lot of trust to the point where on Sunday afternoons after church, all the girls were required to take a nap, but I was allowed to go into the Blankenship's house and watch Andy Griffith. Um, and that was huge. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like I had gained so much trust and to find out that he was still telling my parents that I was not ready to go home. I just couldn't figure out. Yeah. Cause you were essentially a star student is, in many ways. Right. Like I was, I hadn't been on discipline. I wasn't getting any demerits. I've had so much trust that like I was essentially a junior staff member without the junior staff member title. And so I had gotten in contact with my sister and she called me for a phone call one day and she was like, I want you to come home and get out of there. So they would monitor our phone calls. Somebody would be sitting in the room. And if you had said something that was just slightly out of line, um, staff member would take the phone and hang up immediately, which happened to me once, which was my stepmom just asked if I was be tr being treated right. And I had began to cry and the staff member immediately took my phone and hung up. So my sister had called. My phone calls were not monitored as much anymore because I had gained so much trust. And I said, I need to get out of here. When I turn 18, I need to get out of here, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah, because you don't have and anything. You I didn't I didn't have any family. My right. dad didn't my dad didn't think he could come get me. Everybody else in my family didn't know who I where I was, except for like select people. Um, so my sister had said that she was going to buy me a plane ticket when I turned 18 and I had agreed to it, but I hadn't told any of the staff or anything. So as far as they knew, like I was just going to stay and I was terrified to tell them that I wanted to go home. I thought when I go home, like I'm going to become a person that they use in their sermons saying that I was a fail and to not be like me and that, you know, I'm a terrible person, which happened anyway. It's a whole different story, but so I stayed because I was terrified. And then I got to go home for Christmas one year and my dad bought me a little track phone because I was flying and I didn't, he did not have a way to contact me to make sure I was safe in the airports. 
So he bought me a really cheap little track phone just so he could text me like, Hey, are you safe? Did you land? Did you make it to your next flight? Are you in the state? You know, this thing says you're in, (laughs) you didn't get picked up by anybody. So I had went home for Christmas. I made a Facebook to try to connect to my family that I had not talked to in the last five and a half years. And then I was sent back because my week was over and my stepmom at the time called brother Blankenship and told him, well, she bought a phone. She was on Facebook talking to boys. Um, she's hiding stuff. She's deleting conversations, you know? So when I had gotten back, I got punished for everything that I had done on my visit. And then I lost all that trust. And then at that point, that's when I said, I have to get out of here. I need to go home. And brother Blankenship did not look at me or speak to me for three months. And every message that he had was somehow directed towards me, whether it was social media is ungodly. Facebook is a sin. Looking at boys is ungodly. If a boy wants to date you, you should court and he's supposed to go to your father and not really look at you kind of thing. At that point, brother Blankenship called my dad and said, your daughter is beyond help. You need to bring her home. We cannot help her anymore. So my dad bought a plane ticket and flew me home the next day. And when I got home, my dad said, you're not living with me. And I was like, where am I supposed to go? So then I bounced around from house to house because everybody thought I was this severely rebellious kid. But I was so, I had been so sheltered for the last five and a half years of my life that when I had gotten out, it was like, severe culture shock. I was terrified because people were wearing pants. People were listening to music that wasn't a hymn in a hymn book. People had TVs in their houses. People were touching me, like saying hi, giving me handshakes. We had six inch rule. I didn't have physical contact with anybody for five and a half years. So people were trying to hug me and it was, it was so overwhelming that I almost committed suicide a couple times. But thankfully, one of the people that was in the church that we were based out of had given me their phone number very sneakily. (laughs) And I hid it in the spine of my Bible so that when I got home, I could, you know, push it out. And I called her and I said, I need help. I'm so lost. I don't know what to do. I was just pretty much thrown out. (laughs) So that was a whole different trip, but I made it. So I survived. That's awesome. awesome. So just kind of wrapping up, like what's been most helpful to you? Cause like, obviously like that's a lot of just the separation of five years alone, not including all the other things that, you know, add layers and layers and layers of trauma and, you know, like very, very much. I didn't mention this, but I want to touch on it real quick was the, there wasn't so much um, physical abuse. You know, you mentioned that, you asked me about that before, but the amount of emotional and verbal abuse that we received, there are seven days in a week. I probably cried six days out of every week just because of the emotional and verbal abuse that we constantly went through. We had visitors come on the property one time and they had written roll tide on the sidewalk, which is Alabama's football, like chant. I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about Alabama. I didn't know anything about football. I did not know what Roll Tide meant. (laughs) 
I thought it was some sort of like scriptural quote because, you know, the crimson tide, you know, yeah. the blood of Christ. So I was like, oh, that's so neat, you know. But apparently it was extremely vulgar and very wrong for that person to have written that on our sidewalk. I still don't know who did it to this day. But Brother Blankenship saw it and pinned me in a corner in the cafeteria and said, you need to admit to writing that on the sidewalk. And I was thinking, it was, I don't even know what that means. Like, where would I have gotten the chalk right. to even write that on the sidewalk? And he was looking down on me and he said, my brother was in the military at this time. And he looked at me and he said, well, I hope your brother goes to hell because you did not learn from your mistake. And I was like, yeah. did you just condemn my family member to hell because I didn't admit to doing something that I didn't do? <laughs> right. You know, so, I mean, there was just stuff like that daily that was so draining. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, now, and I don't want to guess your age, but it's not that long ago that you got out, I'm guessing. I'm 22. <laughs> okay. Right That's now. about where I would so play. I got so, out three years, years ago, ago. <laughs> four years ago. Yeah. Um, three or four or something like that. What's been most helpful for you? kind of moving past this section of your life, like trying to, you know, obviously like make up for five years of being completely pulled out of the real world. Right. What's, what's been helpful to you? Has it been connected with people who are former students? Has it been, you know, I mean, obviously I know you got some help from people who attended that, the church that you went to before going, but right. what's, what's been that process and like, what's helped you along the way kind of trying to start, basically start from scratch and, and figure life out. Right. I would say the things that have helped me the most are a couple weeks after I had gotten home, one of the girls that was in the home with me had recently gotten out and she had had a Facebook while she was in the home and somehow kept it a secret. So she was on a Facebook group specifically made for Marvelous Grace Girls Academy girls that had gotten out and she had added me to that group. So it was that sense of community. Like I can talk to this girl like she was my best friend when I was in the home. So she knows everything that happened. She's been out. She can, you know, it was just the sense of knowing that somebody that went through it was living still <laughs> pushed me to keep going. And then unfortunately, my family, even to this day, is not very supportive when I try to talk about my time there because the only thing that they can, for some reason, think of saying is, well, it obviously did good. Like you're a different person and it's so you're a different any, person. Any of your positive traits, they basically give credit to the school. Right. And it's like, I pretty much fought tooth and nail to be where I am since I've been out of the home. Making friends was really difficult in the beginning because there's no shared experience really. Yeah. That and then the things that they were doing, I had been taught for the last six years, essentially was extremely wrong. But there's this one girl that was in the church that I went to when I was a kid, that was the church I went to when I got out with my aunt. She kind of took me under her wing and she was like, what you went through was not okay. She's like, I don't understand what you went through, but it was not okay. And she's like, you can talk to me. I, she's like, I don't understand what you went through, but I will do my best to be here for you. She became my best friend. She taught me like, this is what the Bible says. This is that verse. And it does not necessarily mean that exact thing. 
So she taught me, yes, the Bible says somewhere that a man shall not wear that, which pertains to a woman, but it does not necessarily mean, you know, that women can't wear pants. Right. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. She's like, just because you want to listen to more contemporary ish Christian music. She's like, it does not mean that you're going to hell. She's like, Christ is the same Christ. His blood is the same blood. You know, something like that is not going to deter you from heaven or hell. So she was definitely a lifesaver. And then my boyfriend's family, they are very curious to know what happened. Um, especially my boyfriend's sister. I actually, texted her the other day and was like, Hey, you should listen to this podcast. She's like, Oh, okay. She's like, man, you should tell your story. And then when you had sent me the thing, I was like, you'll never guess what's happening. (laughs) She's very supportive. They just, they're very trying to understand. Yeah. What it is. Yeah. So, so having that support system of people trying to understand, even though they don't really know what happened because it seems so wild to them, but, yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So how did, how did you, this is just totally for me, but how did you end up finding out about the podcast? Was it just something you randomly found or did you? So I was on Facebook randomly one day and I'm in a couple different groups of girls okay. that have been in different boarding schools. One of the girls had added me to the New Beginnings Survivor Facebook page right. and because she had posted, she was born and raised in IFB. And her mother would volunteer in the boarding schools. So she kind of grew up around them. She was never in the boarding schools herself. And she's really cool. I still talk to her to this day. She's a wedding photographer and she's, she's left the IFB movement because she realized the abuse that was going on. She had to get out. So she did, but it was through there. Somebody had made a Facebook post about your podcast. And I was like, um, I don't really listen to podcasts, but I'm going to listen to this just to see what it's about. And there was an episode that I heard of somebody in a different home at some point. I think it was one of the homes that was in Texas. I forgot what that one was called. The Bethesda homes or something. Oh, um, the Hepzibah house. Hepzibah house. Yeah. Yeah. The man, what was the man's name that ran those? Uh, 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 Ron Williams. And then Ben Williams was on the show. Um, He was the guest on that episode. Somebody that ran those homes was Brother Blankenship's like biggest idol. <laughs> hmm, that makes sense. Anyway, so so I heard that, and I I mean, she when she was telling her testimony, it was so relatable. And then you know she was saying she found help. She's you know she's not a victim. She's a survivor. She's got kids, and like she's living her best life essentially. And I'm thinking, wow, you yeah. know that could be me. <laughs> right. So. That's how I found out. So, oh, that's awesome. and I listen to it anytime I'm in my car. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad I got to introduce you to podcasts. So yeah. I'm excited <laughs> about that. But, but no, no, thank you. Um, thank you so much for for sharing that and for, I mean, really, like it kind of. I'm sad that it's not better than it doesn't sound much better than how it was. But, <laughs> um, but I think one of the biggest things we can do is just raise awareness, and you know, I'm Definitely. hoping people who either have had a shared experience can find kind of closure through stuff like this. And I hope parents listening know kind of what to expect when considering a, an option like this. It's not a, yeah. a it's, light decision. It's, it's really sad when people 
because I've had people come up and ask like, Hey, my daughter's rebellious. Should I send her to the home you're in? And I'm like, no. Right. And they just can't grasp why. So when you try to explain everything that happened, it's so far fetched that they just can't believe it, right. which is really sad. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. No, that's I'm very a- thankful I found this podcast because it is, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, yeah. Like I said, I'm hopeful that there's some people who listen. That's just totally like, even for me, when I, when I started the show, I didn't have an angle to like cover these homes at all. I knew that I knew of one that existed, but like, I really didn't know that it was as big a industry, which is essentially what it is, as big an industry as it is. So I'm very excited that just that I've gotten to learn about it and meet so many people that have stories in this world. So yeah. But, but yeah, but thank you so much again for doing that and for, for sharing your story. And I think it's going to help a lot of people who've been through similar situations. I hope so. so. I hope so. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.